0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. My name is Bob Weber. I'm one of the elders at Temple Bible Church. I normally sit over here at 930, so I didn't know you went here. Welcome to Temple Bible Church. That's great. Uh, p- the reason I'm up here is because Gary is currently in an airplane over the Atlantic Ocean flying back. Things went well, and so we look forward to having him back uh, incontinent uh, later this today and this week. <laughs> so today is Memorial Day, <clears throat> and the first Memorial Day that was celebrated nationally was in 1868. And it started right after the Civil War. And its intent was to remember the many who had fallen during the Civil War. And just as importantly, to support the hundreds of thousands of people who had lost loved ones in the war and now had to rebuild their lives and to deal with the loss and the emptiness and to move forward. And so we would like to continue that tradition here at TBC. And I'm gonna ask some people to stand in just a minute. The first group are those who have lost someone, who've lost a loved one, as the result of war or military action or active duty military. Um, We wanna support you, we want to encourage you, we wanna comfort you. But there's another group of people I think we need to remember today, And it's those who are here in our body whose spouse or loved one is currently deployed and you have to stay home and you have to take care of all the things that you used to have help doing. And being the stateside loved one of someone who is deployed overseas is also very difficult. You're also having to deal with Uh, missing someone, and the loss of fellowship and friendship. So would those two groups of people please stand. If you've ever lost a loved one as a result of the military action or war, um, active military, please stand. We'd like to honor and comfort you. And if you currently have a loved one who is deployed overseas and you're separated because of that deployment, I'd like you to stand also so we know who is deserving of extra comfort and care. Please stand. Thank you. You can be seated. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort. Lord, we thank you that when we are hurting, you are there to provide support and to care. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a body to be your arms, to be your cheek, to be your shoulder. Lord, I pray that we as a body would be the hugs and that we would be the help for those who are in need of encouragement right now. Lord, we also just pray in general. We thank you that you are the God who superintends all things and that there are no circumstances outside of your control. So we rest in that and we trust in that. And Lord, now as we open your word, we thank you that we can look at your word. And I pray that any words from me are quickly forgotten, but that the words from you would be written indelibly in our hearts. It's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. I was about five, five or six, and I remember kind of vaguely the scalping incident of 1967. My friend and I were arguing, debating, discussing whose dad was better. and. Kids tend to do that, guys particularly tend to do that, and it's the classic argument, my dad's bigger than your dad, or my dad's faster than your dad, or my dad's smarter than your dad, or my dad has more money than your dad, or my dad is your dad's boss. We were in that kind of argument. I don't remember how I got the hatchet, but in order to make my point, I swung the hatchet and hit him right here. Now, fortunately, I think he was ducking, and I had my hand elevated, and it went up and over the skull, but I literally scalped him. Now, he's fine, and we we stitch it up with staples, and that's why I went into plastic surgery. (laughs) But I remember as I was telling this story to Patty Lynn and, and thinking about this, and I said, you know, is this just a guy thing? Or do girls do this? And she reminded me of something that Elizabeth did. Elizabeth is my oldest daughter, and apparently she had gotten in an argument in a playground about her father, and apparently she had been telling everybody that I'm Superman. I don't know where she got that idea. Um, But she was telling them that, and they were arguing back, and their point was, was, well, why don't we ever see him fly? And Elizabeth just said, because he doesn't want to show off. (laughs) So thank you, Elizabeth, for keeping my secret all these years. But we tend to have that as arguments. We tend to have those discussions. Um, Even today, the idea of who's your father matters. I mean, all you have to do is look at the proliferation of the Ancestry.com and trying to figure out where we come from. And the reason why that's important to us is because to a certain extent, rightly or wrongly, we tend to take a lot of our identity and self-worth from our parentage, and particularly from our father. Um, Our father determines a lot of times our wealth or potential for wealth. It can affect our station in life, our influence, and our father can certainly determine what we look like. Now, this was true of the Jews back in Jesus' time. When Jesus was discussing things with the the Pharisees and, and the Jews, who their father was was a big deal. Because who their father was would determine who they could marry. It determined where they lived. It determined their inheritance. It determined what they could be when they grow up. Okay, if you wanted to be a priest, you had to be from a certain father. If you wanted to be a king, you had to be from a certain father. So who's your daddy was a big question to the Jews because it mattered. And we're going to look at that today on why Jesus is emphasizing that and why the Pharisees are emphasizing that. So turn, if you would, to John chapter 8. And we're going to start at verse 39. John chapter 8. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Now we have to stop right there. Because if the passage starts with, they answered him, we need to know what the question is. And if they answered him, Abraham is our father, we need to know what is the question to which the correct answer is, Abraham is our father. So let's go back and Dave, um, Tate did a good job and Chase did a really good job telling us the context of where we are in John chapter 7 and 8. Jesus is in Jerusalem at the temple for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now the Feast of Tabernacles was started by God back in Leviticus and it was designed to remind the Israelites where they came from. So the Feast of Tabernacles is an origin story. And its point is that Israel was in slavery and needed to be delivered. God delivered them, and God provided for them as they went through the desert to the promised land. That's the point of the Feast of Tabernacles, that the Israelites needed delivering and that God delivered them. So it's in the midst of that context now that Jesus is speaking. And Jesus is basically telling them, I am the one you are celebrating. I am the one who delivered you from bondage, and I am the one who guided you through the desert. And as Dave talked about last week, when Jesus said, I am the light. In the temple, they had large candelabras that would provide light and it was this word picture of Jesus providing light. Well, it's actually even bigger and deeper than that because when God was leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the desert, he guided them by a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of cloud by night. Israel was to follow the pillar of fire in order to be delivered. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is saying, I am that pillar of fire. The God you were following that was manifested in that pillar of fire, that was me. I was there too. So Jesus is making very clear his claims to be the Messiah, the promised deliverer. And they get it. As we've seen in the past Four to five weeks, the Jews are getting the idea, could this be the Messiah? Would the Messiah do anything differently than this Jesus person is doing? Maybe he is the Messiah, and the leaders are are confused. So they get Jesus' message. The Jewish leaders also were getting it, and there were many that opposed Jesus. And so they were trying to Counterattack. And basically, they asked Jesus two questions. In verse 18, who is your father? Because again, if Jesus is going to have claims to Messiahship, he's going to have to be able to answer that question. And then the bigger question, who are you? And so, what Jesus is answering here is the following question. Here's the question that Jesus has asked What makes you think you are saved? that you're not dying in your sins, that you are right with God? What makes you think you don't need me? To that question, they answered him, Abraham is our father. You see, to the Jews of the time, their understanding was that salvation came to those who were covenant-keeping descendants of Abraham. If you did your best to keep the law and you were a biological descendant of Abraham, you would be saved. And so for the Jews to understand the question, well, why don't you believe in me? It's because we don't need you. We have Abraham as our father and we are keeping the law. We are keeping the covenant. And so Jesus is now going to look at their answer. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children you would be doing the works of Abraham. Now, it's interesting. When Jesus says, you are his children, he uses a different word than he said earlier. In verse 37, Jesus says, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, but you're not his children. There's a difference between being biological offspring and being children, of having the character of your father. And Jesus points it out when he says, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. Now, that should catch our attention. Why in the world is Jesus talking about works? Why is he making such an emphasis about works? I thought we were saved by grace through faith. Works shouldn't have anything to do with it. And yet here Jesus is basically saying, no, 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 you can't be Abraham's children because you don't have his works. Well, we need to understand what works are. There's two different ways to think about works. The first way is when we work for something in order to bring about merit. In other words, we work, we earn something, we get something. I work as a hand surgeon. One of the things I get is a salary. I get paid for my work. And oftentimes, that's what we can think about when we think about salvation and works. It's something we work for. It's as if there's this cosmic vending machine. And what I'm doing is I'm putting in quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter. And finally, when I got a high enough number, boom, I can hit eight and out drop salvation. I worked for it. I put enough quarters in the vending machine through my works that I paid the price and out comes salvation. If I do something bad, the price goes up a little bit more and I have to put quarters and quarters and quarters in. That's often what we think of. Put enough quarters in the vending machine, out, drop salvation. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Works has another meaning. Works has the meaning of that which reflects the character of the thing working. In other words, works are the outward manifestation of something going on on the inside. I'll give you an example. I work as a hand surgeon. And sometimes people will come to me having injured their hand and will want to know what's going on, and so I'll take an x-ray. And the x-ray may look like this. And you can see a bunch of broken bones. Now, if I want to help that person... I don't go into the back room and use PowerPoint in order to fix the x-ray. X-ray looks great, but I've done nothing for the hand. If I want to fix the person, I need to fix what the x-ray reveals. That's the kind of works Jesus is talking about. He's saying, you're not doing the works of Abraham, and that tells me that there's something broken inside of you. We need to fix that. Well, what is the work of Abraham that Jesus expects them, and by extension, us, to do? Well, he's already answered that question in John chapter 6. At that time, people were following Jesus, and they asked him the following question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You see, from Jesus' perspective, the work of Abraham was belief. Belief in God. And as we'll see, belief in Jesus specifically. Genesis 15:6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as covenant faithfulness. You see, Abraham was a role model because he believed in God. And that's the work that's expected. Now, last week, Dave talked about this idea of belief and how belief is critical to everything we're talking about. And I want to give you an illustration of what we're talking about. Because belief is a lot more than just intellectual assent. It is not just a recognition of certain propositional truths. Imagine if you were at Niagara Falls and there was a day when people would put a wire across Niagara Falls as a tightrope, and they'd walk back and forth. So imagine you're at Niagara Falls, and the guy comes up to you and says, Do you believe I can carry you across Niagara Falls? I don't know. I have questions. I'm somewhat skeptical. Great. So he walks back and forth a couple of times, talks to you. Do you think I could carry you across? Eh, I don't know. Not convinced. So he gets out a wheelbarrow, put some bricks in that are heavy, that match my weight. He goes back and forth once, twice, goes a bunch of times, clearly no problems, wind, waves, nothing. He's getting back and forth easily. Do you believe that I could carry you in the wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? Yeah, I, I believe you could. Great. Get in. That's the belief that Jesus is talking about. It's the belief that commits all of yourself to Jesus. It's much more than an intellectual ascent. It's getting in, recognizing there is no other way, there are no other options, there is no middle ground. I'm going to get in and hold real tight as you take care of and do all the things that I can't do. That's what Abraham did, that's what Jesus expected the Jews to do, and to us to do. You see, the Jews needed to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the argument continues, and it reminds me of one of those grade school arguments, because it's this back and forth. And so now the Pharisees are going to accuse Jesus, because Jesus says, in verse, the end of verse 40, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Now, we miss the emotional impact of that. This is not a, this is a not so subtle, unveiled attack on Jesus' parentage, his father in particular. Because remember the story. Who's Jesus' mother? Mary. Who's his father? I don't know. Oh, it's God. Oh, it's the classic, my mother was a virgin defense. You know, as far as they knew, Mary had been fooling around, got pregnant, and Jesus was born. They are very clearly calling Jesus a, I'm not allowed to use the word, it begins with B and Dave Tate says it sounds like youth pastor they are very clearly calling Jesus out in not so unsubtle and very emotionally charged words. And they're hitting Jesus below the belt for two reasons. Number one, they really don't like him and it's a personal attack. Jesus, you are a be-youth pastor. secondly, They're calling an account to his parentage. If you're going to claim to be the Messiah, then you're going to have to show us who your parentage is. How do we know you can be the Messiah? Because as far as we're concerned, no Messiah comes to us who has no idea who his father is. And they then go on to say, we're sons of God. Ha, ha, ha. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. Now, we know what love means to Jesus. Jesus makes it very clear later on when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Jesus is telling them, look, if you say you love God, then you should be keeping his commandments. You say you love God, but you hate me. You say you love God, but you don't obey me. There's no way you can be sons of God. Now, the reason they thought they were is because the Old Testament said they were. Deuteronomy is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you. Isaiah writes, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. So in the same way the Jews could claim to be the descendants of Abraham, they also had a claim to God as their father. But Jesus is saying here, look, you guys are totally missing it. You may claim with words that God is your father, but you're not loving him. You're not obeying him. You don't love me. You want to kill me. God is not your father. You see, the Jews needed to love and obey Jesus as their Messiah. And now Jesus goes on, and in verse 44, you are the spawn of Satan. That's actually what he's saying. In your versions, it may say, you are of your father, the devil. Feel free to put in there, spawn of Satan. This is their Darth Vader moment. You think you are from God. You think you are from Abraham. But Satan is over there saying, no, I am your father. No! (laughs) They don't like this. This is really hard stuff to hear. You've just been told that Satan is your father. Okay, good, great, let's go have lunch. This is a big deal. Because the Jews believed in Satan. They recognized that the devil was a real being. That the devil was a person. They recognized that he was a created angel that fell. So that for them, an accusation, you are the spawn of Satan, is not just some theoretical thing. No, 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 this is a big deal. Jesus points out who Satan is as if they didn't know. Jesus is a murderer. He's calling to mind Genesis chapter 4 and when Cain murdered Abel and Satan's role in that. Satan is a a liar. Some of his names in the Hebrew refer to this idea of being a liar or a deceiver. Think of Job chapter 1 where Satan goes before God in order to accuse and deceive God. And Jesus is saying... You are of your father, the devil. Now, quick sidelight for just a second. I think we need to remember that we as believers, we actually do believe in a real Satan. We do believe in a devil. It is not a cartoon construct. He's not made up in order to explain evil. We do believe in that, in the same way that we do believe in a real personal God. We don't have to shy away from that. And Jesus isn't here. And so as he's going to this, when he calls the Pharisees of Satan, what he's saying is that they have the same character as Satan. That they too are liars and that they are murderers. You know, recall what Dave talked about last week. They, they, Jesus says, you're enslaved. And they say, we're not enslaved as they're surrounded by Roman soldiers as they're celebrating a holiday proclaiming their liberation from slavery. He says they're murderers. We're not murderers as they get ready to kill him. So to be of Satan meant they had the same character. It meant they had the same reputation. Uh, They were not thought of that highly. And then lastly, it meant they had the same destiny. And that's what Jesus is really getting to here. Look, you guys think you are saved You're not. If things don't change, you are going to die in your sin and you are going to be separated from the God who you have called your father, but he's not. Jesus is trying very, very hard to open their eyes and to bring them back into fellowship because the Jews disbelieve and resist Jesus as the Messiah. And as a result they are cut off from God and that's what he says the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God and that's how he ends verse 47 now they have a response and it's in verse 48 and their response is the classic playground taunt number 3 I'm rubber, you're glue whatever you say bounces off me and sticks on you look at what they say the Jews answers him Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan, have a demon? In other words, I know you are, but what am I? So they're going to accuse him. And Jesus is now, in the next few verses, he's going to categorically answer them and show how he is greater. So in kind of reverse order, he's going to address the fact that he's not the devil, that he is God, and that he's greater than Abraham so he starts out I do not have a demon. That's all Jesus has to say. He doesn't have to there's not a logical argument from that. Do you have a demon? No, I do not have a demon. I'm Jesus. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. In other words, Jesus is saying, look. I'm not of I'm not of Satan. I don't have a demon. What proof do you want? A, rather than being a murderer, I'm a life giver. And B, rather than being a liar, I am a truth teller. So he's not of Satan. The Jews said, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as the prophets did. Yet you say, if anyone creeps my word, he will never see death. They get his argument. They understand fully where Jesus is going. And now they ask two really, really great questions. And they're important questions. They ask Are you greater than our father Abraham and the prophets who died? Who do you think you are? Or to put it the way the Bible does, who do you make yourself out to be? Wonderful questions. Are you greater than Abraham? Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, I'll take those questions. Yes, I do think I'm greater than Abraham. And I'm telling you that I'm God. Look at what he says here. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Now jump down to verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? Well, to understand this, we go back to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, God has asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And I'm going to paraphrase through this, but God basically says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, your only son. And Abraham says, okay. So he sets out with Abraham and his servants, and some wood, and they start going to the place. So here we see Abraham's belief. Namely, he's being obedient, and he's trusting in Jesus. We'll see why I say Jesus in just a second. And it says, so Abraham went early, he went with the donkeys, and they're going out. And it says it's a three-day journey on verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So it was three days from where Abraham was to the place of the sacrifice, Now, during that time, you can imagine what's going on as they're walking. It's three days. The servants are thinking, okay, we've got Abraham, we've got Isaac, we've got wood, we've got no sacrifice, and we're heading farther and farther into the desert. Where in the world are they going to get a sacrifice? Abraham and Isaac are thinking, where in the world are we going to get a sacrifice? I sure hope it's not Isaac. Isaac. Isaac's thinking, where are we going to get a sacrifice? I sure hope it's not me. And this is going through their mind. They are fully cognizant of what's going on. And then it says in verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. Abraham is saying, We're going to go worship, i.e. sacrifice, and we will come back. Before the event, Abraham doesn't know how, but he recognizes that somehow, some way, God is going to do for him what he cannot do for himself. That is what saving belief looks like. So Abraham does what he's supposed to do. They build the altar on top of the mount. He's getting ready to sacrifice Isaac and is just as ready he's getting to sacrifice Isaac. God says, "Abraham, stop! Stop!" I know that you love me. I know that you trust me. Look at those ideas again. And it says in verse 13 And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. You see, Abraham saw Jesus in the ram. Now he didn't know that the ram's name was going to be Jesus. But he recognized that God was going to provide a sacrifice for him that he could not. He recognized he was unable to solve this situation, nevertheless put his whole faith in God, and God provided the deliverer, Jesus. If there's any question of whether we understand that that's what Abraham understood, the author of the Hebrews writes, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it is said through Isaac shall your offerings be named. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. You see, that's how Jesus could say Abraham looked forward to my day and was glad. Because Abraham saw Jesus. Now, we're going to come to the drop the mic moment because the argument is now basically done. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Boom. Drop the mic, walk off the stage. Jesus wins. This is an extraordinarily powerful statement and it's difficult for us to fully appreciate the impact before abraham was i am i am is the name of god i am is the personal covenantal name of god and jesus here is claiming full equality with god by saying before Abraham was, past tense, I am, present tense, Jesus is making no mistakes. It makes it easy for his hearers to hear, and you can tell they get it. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? It wasn't because Jesus was leaving the temple. It's because he just claimed to be God. You see, when the people were being delivered Moses had gone before God and asked God, God, who should I tell them sent me? What is your name? And God told Moses, tell them I am. Tell them I am has sent you. For by that name I will be known. Jesus is the I am. Because that's who God is. I am was in the cloud. I am was in the pillar of fire. I am was out at Mount Sinai delivering the law. I am was delivering them in battle. I am is in the Psalms. I am is in Isaiah and all of these things. And Jesus is saying, all that you understand about I am is me. Now, it says, and Jesus went out of the temple. Again, One of those details that it's interesting to think about. Why does it matter that it says that Jesus went out of the temple? Well, the reason is, is go back to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. Fast forward. Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah. Jesus is in the very place that the ram was stuck in the thickets. And in an incredible prophecy, when Abraham says, I am, will provide, Jesus is standing there as the I am. He is the provision. He is the I am that is now being worshiped by Abraham and believing in Abraham. Jesus is standing there and saying, all that you have been celebrating, all that you are looking for, all that you have worshiped for in the Old Testament, all that you long for is me. I am the Messiah. Believe in me. Trust in me. Love me, obey me, because I am the creator of the universe. I am the source of all things. I am the beginning and the end. I am. Well, like the Pharisees, we now have a choice. We have to ask a question Who's your father? In an audience like this, we're going to have basically three groups. The first will be the unbelievers. And if you are skeptical, you're asking questions about Christianity, you're not quite sure what it's all about, but for some reason you're here today, welcome. We love having you. We like questions. These are great questions. There's not a question you're going to ask that is embarrassing or shouldn't be asked. We may not have all the answers, but you can certainly ask them. We want you here. There's plenty of empty seats. Bring your friends. Now, we are about to do communion. And you're going to see some things. First of all, you're going to see some people taking communion that surprise you. You're thinking, gee, I didn't know they would be Christians. I remember the first time somebody said to me, you go to church? It's like, ooh, ouch. Now what they meant was you go to temple Bible church as in I didn't know that you went here because we go to a different service. But I found myself thinking, wow, do I live a life in such a way that people would be surprised that I go to church? So you may see some people taking communion that surprise you. But what you're really gonna see is a whole lot of people sharing a common faith. A whole lot of very different people sharing a common faith. A lot of people who have been broken. A lot of people who have been needy. A lot of people who have come and recognized that Jesus is the answer. That Jesus is the Messiah. So here's my question. As you are looking for evidence, what evidence leads you to believe that Jesus is not God. I have no problem talking about evidence for Jesus as the Messiah, but what evidence do you have that he isn't? You see, because there is no neutral. There is no neutral ground. God either is your Father or he's not. Jesus either is your Messiah or he's not. And at some point, the day will come... When you face God, and he will either be your father or not. So there is no middle ground. So I ask again, with respect, what evidence leads you to believe that Jesus is not the Messiah? Now, in a congregation of this size, we would also have a number of people who would call themselves Christians, but may not be. According to a recent poll, 80% of Texans self-identify as evangelical Christians. The state doesn't look like that. Now, the Jews of the time to whom Jesus was talking, they had correct theology. If you're here, I dare say you have reasonably good correct theology. The Jews of the time of Jesus obeyed the law I'm willing to bet that you obey the law, that you do many good things. So what's the difference? Well, the Jews of the day didn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And we talked about what that belief means. You see, to be a Christian is not a religion. It's not theology. It's not practice. Salvation requires recognition. It, rec- it means you recognize, yes, the world is messed up, but it's messed up because I'm messed up. Yes, the world is messed up, but more importantly, I'm messed up. We call that sin. And it's a recognition that I do evil. It requires a recognition that I can't fix it, I can't save myself. Only God can. Only God can fix the problem, and the problem is me, and I repent. And then it requires a trust, that willingness to get in the wheelbarrow. And it becomes much more than just an ascent to intellectual knowledge and trying to put in quarters in a vending machine. And it's a commitment of everything that I know of myself to everything that I know of God because I know I can't save myself, and only God can. And it's submission. Submission. It's a recognition that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the I am. He is the Lord. That's what salvation is. So as we get ready to serve communion, I would ask those of you who are going to serve the communion to come on forward. And those who are going to uh, do the music, come on down. Because for most of us in here, most of us are Christians. Most of us do recognize God as our Father. In which case, Welcome. You're home. This is a great place to be. We have God as our Father that makes us brothers and sisters, and this is a time of joyous celebration. For those of you who are Christians and you don't necessarily come to Temple Bible Church, you are welcome to be here. If you're a believer, that's all it takes to celebrate communion with us. So if you're here in Temple for the holidays, you could have picked a better place. There are other more exciting places to go, but if you're here at Temple Bible Church for the holidays, you're home. Welcome home. There's nothing like being far away from the place that you call home, walking into a room and recognizing there's just some way that you can tell that you're home. And we welcome you. So as we do communion, as we celebrate with one another, we look at the admonition of Paul in 1 Corinthians And it's the one where he tells us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the I Am's death until he comes. This is a great celebration. And as you celebrate, look around. Feel free to talk. These are your brothers and sisters. It's okay. Yes, this is a time of personal reflection, but it's also a time of celebration. So say hi to somebody. But I do need to talk about the rest. Because the verse also says there's a warning. And it says to examine yourselves to make sure that you are in a right p- place with God. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the I am in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the I am. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment. This is a celebration and everyone is invited, but I want to point out three things. First of all, if God is not your father, please just watch. This is a celebration of God as your father. So if God's not your father, just watch and think. And maybe this is the day when you realize the evidence is there and you repent. And you want to be a part of it. In which case, if today is the day of your salvation, come running down the aisles. We'll be glad to feed you. Secondly, if you are willfully rebelling against your father, now is not the time to take communion. This is a celebration of our submission to God as our father and Jesus as our brother. If we're willfully and meaningfully running against him, again, today's not the day. And then thirdly, Scripture tells us if you're fighting with a brother or sister, get right with them first before you celebrate God as your father. So I would ask you to consider these things, to pray But as I said, most of all, this is a time of celebration. And if you're in any of those categories, there's no better time today than to join the family, to stop running away from God, and to make right with your brothers and sisters. Let's celebrate communion.